the unification of Italy from 1850 to 1870. So following the failures of the 1848 to 49 revolutions, the kingdom of Piedmont Sardinia became the focal point of those who continued to pursue Italian independence. Yes, indeed, Piedmont was the only Italian state to have a constitution, which was the Statuto. Hence, there was greater political participation and agitation for change was concentrated in Piedmont. Also, Democrats, liberals, and Republicans looked for Piedmont for leadership. Its constitution attracted foreign supports from Britain as well. Yes, they had the Sicardi laws, which were the laws which reduced the power of the church in Piedmont, making the movement and the atmosphere less clerical. Yeah, it abolished church courts and the rights to sanctuary. And it also prevented clerics from asking the cases to be held in church courts. Yes, however, these laws, they created lots of tension between the left and the right. So the prime minister, Dazelio, at the time, he, in order to appeal to the right, he wanted to establish a reduction of the freedom of the press. But at this moment, Cavour, he takes this opportunity to intervene and he establishes a connection with the left and creates the Canubio. He was very ambitious and able and he wanted to get rid of Austrian interference in Italy. He also wanted to expand the power and influence of Piedmont. He was certain that this would never be achieved without foreign assistance. So yes. after so many failures to achieve Italian independence, we are left with this leader who is very pragmatic and has this very direct way of approaching politics. Yes, undeniably, Cavour, he was very focused on expanding Piedmont and making it more industrialized and modernized. And we can see it through uh, his economic reforms. Piedmont has become, had become a working constitutional state and was making progress, a characteristic that is shared with Britain. Britain was an important connection for Piedmont as they were open for trade and wouldn't stop the revolution. Also, Piedmont's improved economy increased its political status even more and helped military development. Its modernization, reduction in clerical influence led it to be seen as a political leader of Italy, even more. So it was increasingly admired by Britain and France, and it had sort of laid the basis for the essential diplomacy that was to lead to unification. Yes, Cavour, he, he finally realized that Italy needed foreign support. I think he was the one who really stood up and said, we can't do this alone. Italy can't unite itself. Yes, um, and one of the main historiographical debates of this time is if Italy united itself or if it was a result of foreign support. So it's interesting to also think of this perspective. To what extent was it the action of internal rulers or the Italian population? Or was it just a result of wars that were going on outside? And French and, influence yes. also. Um, yes, it's important to see that. And also another debate, which is very crucial for us to examine in this podcast, is to what extent was Cavour the architect of Italian unification? To what extent can we say that he planned this, that his actions were directed towards this goal of unifying Italy eventually or not, right? So clearly Piedmont was already a great place to start from. Yeah, he already had that established sort of... Um, you know, architecture for his unification. And also with the National Society as well, that uh, believes that Piedmont could govern Italy. 
But then we go on to Cavour's first political action, which is his involvement in the, in Crimean, the Crimean War. <laughs> It's controversial to think that it was actually Cavour's idea to join the Crimean War, as historians such as Gooch and Stiles mentioned that he was actually pressured by Victor Emmanuel and Britain and France to join the war. It wasn't yes. his idea. He there didn't want to do it. There is also the, the more like traditional perspective, which is offered by historian White, which is that he wanted to join it and to end this Austrian influence in Italy, which is plausible as well. But then when we actually look at the details... It was purely a defensive move. According to historian Franco Valsecchi, he said that Cavour's action in the Crimean War were defensive. He had to do it. He, he saw it as something that he had to act upon. He didn't plan it at all, you know? Yeah, but then... Um, what actually well, led to the Crimean War? What, what happened to Italy because of the Crimean War? Well, I think the most important outcome of the war was actually um, its influence in Austria. Yeah, the, the weakness of Austria. Because when we looked at the 1848 revolutions in the last episode, we saw that it was Austria's um, military, might, yeah. and military might that put down um, the uprisings all the time. So yeah. the fact that through the Crimean War, Austria was so weak and economically as well. Yeah, because was very Austrian weak. neutrality actually isolated it in Europe, right? Austria not joining with Russia and, and Piedmont joining with Britain and France. Austria was isolated and that weakened it a lot and the Crimean War was a turning point for Austrian influence in the balance of power of Europe. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then... The Crimean War ends, and there's the Paris Peace Conference in 1856. Cover succeeded in having this place in the Paris Peace Conference, which would eventually be a place for him to exercise his diplomacy and gain the, the European powers' attention and drive them towards Italy and the expulsion of Austria from yeah. Italy. Historian White again suggests that he was successful in making an important personal contact with French Emperor Napoleon III. But of course, there's the other side to that. There's the side that he didn't make actual contact at all. In fact, he actually failed to push for the, for the Italian cause and to break alliances between Britain and Austria. Yeah, the only thing that suggests that Cavour maybe established some contact with Napoleon III was his subsequent interference in Italy. But there was also the fact that he suffered an assassination attempt. Yes, indeed, his assassination attempt in 1958... Uh, 1858? By, <laughs> 1858. <laughs> by Orsini was what actually brought his attention to Italy. In the trial, um, Orsini's speech uh, towards Italy captivated Napoleon's attention so much that he decided to set up the secret meeting with Cavour at Plombiers. And also, his uncle was the napoleon who really brought this whole idea to italy at first so he had that personal motive himself there's this idea that napoleon wanted to do something for italy yeah but that again yeah. is still controversial according to lcb seaman whatever else was discussed discussed at plombieres it was not italian unification and neither Cavour nor Napoleon III were looking to unify Italy. I think, uh, according to LCB Seaman, again, Cavour was only trying to get what he could get and nothing more. With his diplomatic skills and his pragmatism, he didn't want to look for the impossible. He just wanted to get the maximum he could get in that interaction. 
And Napoleon III, he wanted to expand French influence in Italy. He, he didn't want to help Italy to unify itself. He was just looking to expand French. So they met at Plombières, which is a very famous name in this Italian story. And they agree that in return for Nice and Savoy, France would assist Piedmont with 20,000 troops in a war against the Austrian monarchs. So this link is established between them. And if Cavour intended to unify Italy or not is a debate. If he was the architect is a debate. But it is no doubt that in this moment, he was a very skilled politician. Yes, he did exercise his diplomacy in Plombières. He did succeed to forge the Franco-Piedmontese alliance. And he made Napoleon agree to help Piedmont in the war against Austria. And that's what they needed. They needed French help. And with French help, they started succeeding in the war. In the two battles of the First War of the Resurgimento, um, they, in Magenta and Solferino, um, Austria was defeated by the Franco-Piedmontese army. Uh, however, I think Napoleon started to realize that yeah. what he wanted wasn't happening. He was not at all aiming for Piedmont to expand into the central areas of Italy, and everything was going too fast. Yeah, I think it was way too radical for him. And the sovereigns of Tuscany, Parma, and Moderna were compelled to leave their territories, and in the papal states, the Pope's authority was being challenged. So, so that's led him to sign unilaterally. Yeah, there was, there the, was a clear pathway for unification there. And, yeah. and Napoleon... He had to stop it. He, Napoleon III was also... Uh, scared of of Prussia entering the war with Austria. So that led him to, to sign the armistice de la Franca. Yeah, yeah, he ignored his his agreements with Cavour in the Plombier and unilaterally signs this this agreements with Austria to stop the war. And Victor Emmanuel was eventually forced to start signing the armistice as well because he couldn't fight the Austrians without the French. He needed yeah. the French. This also links back to the debate of to what extent did Italy unite itself? Like, yeah, they, they were dependent on France, and that uh, clearly illustrates this point, right? And I think we didn't mention, but the fact that Cavour um, suggested giving, giving Nice and Savoy to France shows that he wasn't looking for Italian unification at all. He wasn't planning for unification. Yeah. How would one who plans to unify his country... Um, Give, give up, away. give up some yeah. areas he, he wasn't... He gave his country away to a foreign leader. It just illustrates how much he was looking for Piedmontese expansion yes. and not Italian unification. Yeah. Well, after signing the armistice at Villafranca, Cavour resigned because he was enraged by the fact that that was occurring. But, but then, there was an unpopular mood after this armistice. Yes. Indeed, the, the sovereigns... Italians, the Italians wanted to unify. They, yeah. they wanted to get rid of the Austrians. And the sovereigns had been returned after Villafranca because yeah. um, Lombardy was to be given to Napoleon. And Napoleon would give it to Piedmont. But Venetia would remain Austrian. And all of the sovereigns in... Um, I don't remember. Tuscany, the duchies, would be uh, restored. And... Obviously, the people of Italy did not receive that well. The mood was of enragement and revolt. Yeah, the, the sovereigns in Tuscany, Parma, and Moderna yeah, were exactly. to be restored. 
But then there was a call for immediate action due to these revolts and these, this unpopular mood. Cavour then returned. <laughs> he saw that the people were looking for Piedmontese annexation and he returned as prime minister, offering Napoleon Nice and Savoy as he wanted to make sure that he would keep up with his offer. He didn't want to seem like he just offered it and didn't come through with his actions. He actually offered it back to Nice and, Sav- nice and Savoy in return for the central Italian states. He was very diplomatic. He would never do something without making sure he would get his part also. Napoleon was reluctant to accept this, but a plebiscite was arranged and the overall majority, majority voted in favor of fusion with Piedmont. Then we see the rise of a very Gary important Balti. figure after yeah. this. Yeah. Uh, we talk a lot in history about the difference between pragmatists and dogmatists. And Garibaldi was one who, who played with his heart and his mind. Yeah, right? different from Cavour, Garibaldi, he believed in the impossible. He's known as to be the sword of the movement. He, he's the one who received this attention of the great leader, the one who fought for Italy, who gave his blood for Italy. He, he, he fought. Yeah, he was described by A.G.P. Taylor as the only admirable figure in modern history. And indeed, he made several significant contributions to the unification of Italy, which demonstrated his skills as an experienced military figure. Yeah, he traveled around the world and uh, actually to Brazil also, where he <laughs> learned uh, guerrilla warfare. And he had the loyalty of his troops and a very strict discipline yeah, of the military. Which is also what differentiates him from the other leaders we saw in early Italian unification, such as Mazzini. Yeah. He, he wasn't this passionate leader who believed in republicanism and all these radical ideas. He did have a very strong passion for Italy, but he never failed to be very strategic in his military expertise. Yes. So in May, a new phase in the unification process began. Garibaldi led a small group of volunteers known as the Thousand by boats to Sicily. His immediate objective was to assist a revolution which had broken out on the island. But by 6th of June, he had captured the capital, Palermo, and began preparations for an assault in the mainland. So, Cavour, he didn't receive that well. Yeah, according to LCB Seaman, uh, with his fine sense of the possible, Cavour noticed that this was the time to stop. Not as a matter of principle, but of practical Practical politics. politics. (laughs) So (laughs) there was no space in Italy for both of these men. The fact that both Garibaldi and Cavour realized this in the end saved much bloodshed in Italy. So that's a little spoiler. Italy (laughs) could not handle both of these guys at the same time. They're different um, mindsets and wants and ways of action and ways of thinking. Yeah, and I think like throughout our our, uh, episode today, we've noticed that... Uh, the unification was compromised by, by Cavour's pragmatism. If Garibaldi had never existed, it's possible to claim that... With, unification with, would have stopped yeah, in with, Piedmont, with, with yes. the north. Yes, or, or have, with Piedmontese expansion and a kingdom established there, which... It would never have unified with the south if it wasn't for Garibaldi and his, his, uh, his actions. So in June, Garibaldi captured uh, the capital of Sicily, Palermo, 
And then already in August, he um, crossed the Straits of Messina and struck north for Naples. This was because, in contrary to Cavour's expectations and hopes, Garibaldi had succeeded in Sicily. This is according to Seaman. Cavour's aim was to get Sicily annexed to Piedmont, and Garibaldi wanted that too, but not before he had reached Rome. This is because he knew that once Sicily passed into Piedmontese control, he would be unable to use it as he intended to use it. So Garibaldi entered the city of Naples on September, already with plans to liberate Rome. But Cavour knew that this proposed march on Rome carried with it the serious danger of provoking war with France. So to avoid this, he marched the Piedmontese army to intercept Garibaldi. But before, he organized a plebiscite in the former Bourbon kingdom, which was dominated by Garibaldi. But as the Sicilian, they, they didn't know the language and they wanted to join with Piedmont, so the plebiscite was indeed in favor for annexation with Piedmont. And Garibaldi was forced to accept the result. So the hardened revolutionary in 1860 met King Victor Emmanuel and handed over his conquests. The Kingdom of Italy was proclaimed in 1861 and unification was now almost complete. But we still have Venetia and Rome. Venetia and the property of Austria. And what does it all come down to? Foreign intervention. Once again, um, Venetia and Rome were two um, territories that were given back to Italy due to the international situation. So due to the Austro-Prussian War of 1866, um, Venetia was given back to Italy in return for supporting Prussia in the war, as Napoleon III remains neutral. And then this was followed by the Franco-Prussian War in 1870, when Napoleon removed his troops from Rome and Victor Emmanuel called on the Pope to allow Rome to join with Italy. But the Pope refused, and as a result, Garibaldi's troops were sent to Rome. They marched in, and the forces were quickly defeated. And in October 1870, after a plebiscite, Rome became the capital city, city of a politically and geographically united Italy. So, there it is. Italy's Italy is unified. Now, now what can, he, can, what can we say? Cavour architects? Nah. No, he wasn't the architect of unification. He never wanted unification. What Cavour wanted was Piedmontese expansion. Yeah. And Italy did, not, Italy did not unite itself also. No, to I an think, extent. I think, Cavour, to, I think Cavour could be the architect, but was he planning on building it? I think, no, he, I I think, think his he, diplomacy he was held, necessary. He held it the blocks of, of the Italian yeah. building in his hands and, and Garibaldi was the person who got all of those blocks. Yeah, you know what they say. The you know building. what they say that Mazzini is the heart of Italy. Garibaldi's the sword and Cavour's the brain. They made it all happen. Not because they wanted to, like in Cavour's case, but eventually he was needed for that to happen. His yeah, diplomacy think, was I necessary. Cavour, Garibaldi wouldn't Cavour have done built, it alone. Cavour built the foundation, right? And then uh, the true architects were, were those thinkers, were those 
you know, were, was Mazzini and then was Garibaldi, which united Mazzini's republicanism with a more militarized... Mazzini, a man ahead of his time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But indeed, foreign intervention was very necessary for the yes. unification of Italy. Yes, maybe, maybe we, we should say that the, the true architect was Napoleon. <laughs> uh, maybe, maybe. Maybe. Yes. He wanted to do something for Italy, didn't he? He did want to do something for Italy. But yeah. I think that's it. For this podcast, um, we've finished Italian Unification now, and um, I hope you guys have enjoyed our podcast. Thank you.